Romans, and we've gotten all the way to chapter 14. And that's the title of today's sermon, A Kingdom Mind. Now, I like to start sometimes asking a little bit of a pressing question. And today's question is, what does it mean to have empathy? It is to see for us people beyond just your own experience. It is to see people beyond just your personal convictions. It is to not look at other people judgmentally or even to make assumptions about who they are, but it is the pressing desire to know the whys and the hows behind who people are. That's why we have things like testimony time. Because we often see the tip of the iceberg of who people are, but there are many more layers to who we are as people. And so what we should desire to do as Christians more than anything is to know the how and the why. But as you know, unfortunately, we live in a world that masters in making snap judgments about people and their situations without having all the details to do so. Most of the reason that this happens is that unbelievers often lack the perspective needed to not overly focus on the now. Christians, however, should not have that perspective. Believers have our eyes simultaneously fixed on the people around us, but we are supposed to also be focusing on Christ keeping him in view, and keeping in view that kingdom that he constantly tells us about. But y'all, I think many of us have heard those horror stories of recent years, the talks about church hurt. And while some of that may have been a little bit overblown or over-exaggerated, I will say this, that a good portion of it that was real was rooted in the insensitivity of Christians in how they handled people and how they handled the sensitive matters that people went through. Harsh things were done. Harsh things were said. And I can say, y'all, with all honesty, that not only did I participate in this culture, but I was also hurt by that very same culture. And y'all, I think it happens when people, instead of focusing on the kingdom of God, the kingdom that is to come, pastors and preachers and church people start to build their little kingdoms down here. And the second they feel that that kingdom is threatened, they attack. But as Christians, the challenge for us, legitimate, real Christians, is to live as members, not just on earth, because we are here, but it is also to live as members of that kingdom of God. And you cannot be a citizen of the kingdom of God and not treat people well. We must be a people who know how to live on this earth, but not just in a churchy way, but in a kingdom way. And yes, there is a difference between living in a churchy way and living in a 
kingdom way. And today we're going to see what that difference is and what it means to have a kingdom mind. So go with me if you will. We're in Romans chapter 14 and we are going to read all of it so that we can understand the context of what Paul has to say. We're in Romans chapter 14. (coughs) Paul writes this, he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives God thanks. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both over the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever that serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith you have, keep it between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whatever has doubts is condemned. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let's pray. Lord, as we um, prepare our hearts and our minds to jump into the word of God again this week, Um, Lord, these are going to be both heavy and simple things that we're going to wrestle with today, but we need to land on good ground. 
Lord, the challenge is for all of us in here who identify as Christians to not look at the people around us or the world around us the way that we would look, but that we would do so the way Christ has looked, not only at the world around us, but how Christ has looked at us. Lord, help us know what it means to have a kingdom mind. And God, let us reject the false culture and traditions of hurt and harm of the past church. Number 11, please. And let us draw near to Christ. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so we are picking up from saying what we saw last week, that loving each other is the fulfillment of the law. Paul is now saying that some people who are in the church are, in fact, weak in their faith. What does it mean for someone to be weak in their faith? Contextually, this probably doesn't mean what you think it means. Typically, when Christians hear or see that somebody is weak, we think that that means as a chain has a weak link, that this means that this person is a weakened or distorted link in the face, but that's actually not what it means in this text. It doesn't mean that somebody is weak and we have to come together because they're a weaker link, but rather it is more so how a child or a baby is weak. They are dependent on their parents for care and nourishment, and you know not to have unreasonable expectations for a baby or a child because they are weaker. You know that it is unreasonable to expect because a baby is little that they can't do the things that an adult might be able to do. And because of this, there is a delicacy, there is a gentleness that you have with them, that you handle them with because you know that they are weaker. There are things that they simply are not able to do just yet. And you don't ridicule a child for not being able to eat. You don't ridicule a child for not being able to clean themselves or take care of themselves because you know they simply are not yet in that stage of life. They are not mature enough to do that. And that's really important for us to know when we understand what a new convert is or what a weaker Christian is. This is not necessarily someone who is just weak and can't handle themselves, but who may be a little bit more dependent on us and may need a little bit more grace. Every year working at the school, we will have these kids who come in who have not had any teaching in the Bible, not any training, nor long-term relationship with Christians And there are always these terms of these topics that come up that they don't have the context for. And sometimes these are very specific conversations. And the one sure way to make sure that they will never believe is to ridicule them for not knowing. To mock them for their lack of understanding. Y'all, Paul here is taking a really specific issue in the church during this time, and there were Christians on both sides of this. Now, I realize that this may not be as big an issue for us, but there are other critical issues in the church that bog us down as well. Here for them, it was a matter of what a person ate and what was appropriate to eat and what wasn't appropriate to eat. Maybe this isn't crazy to us, but it is really important to them. 
Some of those Christians who were ethnically Jewish were still not comfortable eating meats. They were not the kind of people who were saying, you're wrong if you do, but that they were not comfortable doing it themselves. Now, this is what we call in church a secondary issue, y'all. Yes, it is best if all of the church is in agreement on it, but it's not necessary. Of course, there are non-negotiables when it comes to Christianity. What you believe about God is important. What Jesus did and who Jesus is is important. The work of the Holy Spirit, how we're saved, the Trinity, and there's a lot more. For those, those are non-negotiables. Either you believe those or you don't. But this is not one of those issues. This is about believers being sensitive to the soft spots of others. Where I believe church hurt rears its ugly head the worst is when Christians take these secondary, non-essential issues and then they make them doctrine. And they say, if you don't absolutely get it right on this issue, you're not a Christian. And that is a gross mistake. For example, maybe this one is a hot topic. Modesty in the Bible is not as concretely defined as you probably think that it is. I think the parameters of modesty are but when you factor in the difference in attire, the difference in dress, the difference in availability of clothing, what they thought modesty was back then probably ain't what the most modest people think modesty is today. There's context. And I think in terms of the specific way people should dress relative to today, modesty can be quite subjective. That's the first thing. Even as Christians in this room, I bet if we polled everyone, they would have varying degrees of what is modest and what isn't modest. And I'll be honest, what may be modesty for me might not be modesty for you. For plenty of people, a pastor with long hair, earrings, and tattoos is immodest. Praise God for them who believe that. For them, it is immodest for a man to have long hair. Hair should be short, should be cut neat. Modesty would be me keeping a shorter style, even though in Jesus' day, many of the Jewish people had long hair, amen. The men had long hair, contextually. But it was actually the Roman men who kept their hair short. And so I can imagine an issue where you have some people who are ethnically Jewish who had converted to Christianity and some people who were part of Rome and they came together in a church and they're staring at each other. Why your hair short? Why your hair long? And the worst thing they could have done on either person is project where they are in their faith based on something as trivial as hair. We're talking about hair. I wonder if it ever came up in that church. The point is not that only mature Christians vary on this, but it is that everybody has their own idea of what modesty may be. 
And if we don't agree on these things, why would we think a new convert or a young Christian is going to come into the church and automatically know exactly what all these things are and mean? There has to be on the place of the church grace and mercy offered in these areas. How many times were young men and women who didn't know any better turned away or mocked or ridiculed because they didn't understand what modesty meant or when and where to wear a hat or just the fact that they didn't have anything else to put on? How many people got scathing rebukes but nobody ever asks why. And then we'll go and we'll damn people to hell because they don't come to church and don't realize we the reason people don't come to church. When we actively or passively harshly handle people that way, we passed judgment on them and their relationship with God. And we projected that what was right for us was also right for them. Y'all, very quickly, what was a matter of personal conscience can become a matter of control and law. Paul says, how could you pass judgment on someone that God has welcomed or pressure that what their convictions are should be yours? And he says, some people may do or even observe things on some days while other people do things on different days. And his point is that it is not the heart of the Christian to say, because I do it this way. Everybody else needs to do it the way that I do it. If what you do is not in the Bible and is not an essential issue, then keep doing what you do and let them do what they do. And if they want to know what you do, they will ask you what you do. Now, this doesn't mean that something like how a person dresses doesn't need to be addressed, but Christians should also not on their character or their intentions based on something as simple as their clothes. To pass this type of judgment, Paul says, is to despise your brother or sister in the Lord. From there, he starts to emphasize that in the grand scheme of things, we will not give account for our brother. We will not give account for our sister, but that we will give account for ourselves. And this, y'all, is where the conscience comes in. There may be things on the basis of your conscience that are not good, but you cannot assume that what is bothering your conscience is also bothering everybody else. The person we will all have to answer God about will be us. 
Did we uphold our morals? And did we harshly judge or even condemn others? And Paul says in all of this, what does it mean to be kingdom minded? Don't call someone grief and don't be a means of stumbling for them. If someone comes to you and says, you know what? Personally, I don't drink alcohol. Y'all, that is not your invitation for 21 questions on alcohol, wine, and freedom. It is your moment to respect the fact that that is between that person and God. And more than anything, be sensitive to that. Suppose this is a weaker or recent convert who says they believe that the Bible says that they shouldn't have alcohol. This is not your time to be Mr. and Mrs. Theologian. It is for us to shut our mouths, respect where they may be in their walk, and let that belief hold them close to Christ. And truth be told, if we were all honest, all of us have ebbed and flowed over some of these things in our own lives. Based on where you may be in life, Based on where you might be in that day, your conscience may tell you, I don't need to drink no alcohol today. Based on where you may be, your conscience may lead and direct you somewhere else. The plan is not to say, this is what I believe across all things at all times, but that in this moment where I am with God, this is where I stand on this issue but not presume that you've done all the growing you're going to do in your faith. There are times that you may feel weaker about certain things that you didn't in the past. Or we may even need to take a break from things, like fasting from them to draw near to Christ. If I beat someone down so badly, then I am not representing Christ. And he says that it is the unwise who reduce the kingdom to what someone wears, to what someone eats, what someone drinks. Jesus, y'all, is so much more than that. Jesus is the one who whenever he saw anyone who was in need, he did not default to the religious customs of the day. He met the need. Person with a withered hand, There's a higher obligation in his conscience not to just uphold the law and say, well, I can't do this on this day because it's a Sabbath. I have the means to meet the need. And what does he do? He meets the need. That's the real Jesus. He met people and their need right where they were. Y'all, that's the kingdom. Do not, for the sake of non-essential secondary issues, destroy the work of God. I know of churches who say, I know of one in particular, that says that pants are only for men. Which, by the way, Pants didn't come around to 500 years after the scripture they referenced, but who am I? They say pants are only for men. 
and that it is inappropriate or immodest for women to wear pants. And they believe that women should only wear skirts because skirts are more modest or dresses because dresses are more modest. And I've seen in one specific church them embarrassing either non-Christians or young Christians who didn't meet their standard of modesty. I wonder how many of those people still go to church. I've also heard wise Christians say that pants can, in fact, be more modest than dresses and skirts, and I'll leave that at that. That's one example. But what is the collateral damage, y'all, for people who have experienced this type of treatment? At the hands of church people. The faith that you have, Paul says, keep it between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Y'all, this might actually be the most important point of the sermon. I know so many people who have been a part of ministries or churches and in groups who change their behaviors, who change their values or their morals, not because they saw them as right, but because other people told them that is right. They even violated what they felt was right or wrong for them to be contextually accepted into a church. Y'all, that is not a kingdom mind. And the Christian knows not to compel someone to do something they either see as wrong or have yet the freedom to enjoy. Again, if it is not in the Bible and it is a matter of personal freedom and it does not violate God's moral law, then Paul says, keep that between yourself and God. But as Peter says, we don't like doing that because we be busy bodies in other men's matters. We be in other folks' house, in other folks' hearts, in other people's minds, trying to figure out what their motivations are, trying to figure out where their weaknesses are. All the while, we are not even strengthening where we should be in the Lord. I'll give you an example of this. For all of you who know, we do not teach here about you being forced to give 10% in your giving. I don't really ever talk about tithes unless the scripture is talking about it. But you'll never hear me say, you have to give 10%. And the reason that is, it's not a mandatory gift. You never see it in the New Testament. You see it and it says, give as you purpose in your heart. And giving is also not just restricted to money. Some people don't have money, but they have time. Some people don't have time, but they have resources. There are lots of ways that a person can give that don't often get talked about in church. This ain't one of them churches. We have been blessed enormously by people who may not necessarily have the means to give, 
but had time, who had energy, who had youth, who had resources. So we do not teach that you have to give 10%. But I also don't tell anybody who has made up in their mind, in their conscience, that 10% is what they want to give, that they're wrong. That is your freedom to do that. And even if that's what you've grown up doing and you understand with clarity, I don't have to do this, I'm not going to come tell you you're doing something wrong. Because the faith you have between you, keep it between you and God. But I will say this. Not only have plenty of churches taught wrongly that a Christian must give 10%, but we all know that there were people who either felt uncomfortable giving 10% to that specific church or, quite frankly, did not have 10% to give. And they gave it anyway. And wicked men and women in the church accepted that gift, not because it was an offering to the Lord, but because it was an offering to that person. And when they did that and when they forced people into those positions, they violated what they felt led to do to be honoring to God and actually sinned because the scripture just said this. If it does not proceed from faith, it is sin. What am I saying? Don't come in here and raise your hands and sing because you think that's what people expect of you. If that's not the way you do it, don't do it out of obligation. If it's not proceeding from faith, it is sin. Maybe you're not comfortable the way things go. Don't just equivocate and say, well, because everybody else does it, even though I'm not comfortable doing it, that I just have to do what everybody expects of me. Don't do anything in church, in your relationship with God, out of obligation of other people. Because what Paul just said, it's sin. So Brandon, are you saying that if people in your church can't give money, they shouldn't give? Uh, Yes. I actually am. Because even if you give that gift, Even if you give your service and you are doing it out of what people expect you to do, you are sinning. And the last thing we want to do is to cultivate an atmosphere of sin. Now, the key is we've all got to strengthen our relationship with God because this is the other thing. There are probably things that you believe consciously are right or wrong, and you actually may be wrong. But what we have to do as believers is gently bring you to the truth. I'll never forget, there was was a major doctrinal issue that I did not accept and I had worked under this pastor, and he knew I was struggling with it. And it took me some time to really grasp my mind around it. It was eternal security. 
And I remember years later, we had lunch. <clears throat> and I asked him, I said, why didn't you just beat some sense into me? Why didn't you just shake me and say, this is right. Get it in your head. And he told me something that changed my perspective. He said, because Brandon, I remember when I was in my 20s and I struggled with the same thing you're struggling with now. He's like, and I just gave you the time and the space to grow and to learn. And I gave you truth without beating you over the head with it. And I look back and I think that is why I was able to grasp what I couldn't grasp. It's because I wasn't forced to believe it. That he loved me and cared with me and cared for me enough as a weaker Christian to guide me along. Y'all, whatever doesn't proceed from faith proceeds from obligation and expectation. So listen, to wrap this all up, I'll say this. I remember having a a conversation with a friend who said that she was more comfortable with God than she was with Jesus, which automatically has issues in that statement alone. But I was like, all right, we're going to talk this thing through because I don't understand what you mean. And she said, well, I just feel like Jesus only went to the cross because he had to. He was forced to go to the cross. He was forced to die on the cross, but he probably wouldn't have done it if he didn't have to. And I was like, oh, okay, so you don't, you don't see This is actually what makes Jesus the epitome of the kingdom mind. Because the Bible says that while on the cross, he could have summoned 10,000 legions of angels and they would have taken him off the cross, yet he laid down his life. Or in the Garden of Gethsemane, he could have said, as a matter of fact, I'm not going to do this, but he says, as he always defaulted to the will of the Father, it is not my will, but yours. I told her, Jesus did nothing out of obligation. He did it because it was his chief desire to please the will of the Father, even if that meant submitting to lying Romans, even to death on the cross. He did it because he loved his father. Y'all, if we are going to have a kingdom mind, if we are going to be more like Christ, it is not our desire and our motivation to be moved by what tradition says or what people say. What does the word of God say about it? It is time for middle men who are manipulating the word to stop taking advantage of people. The word of God is the single authority in churches and if anyone goes above or beyond that authority, he is a liar. We must seek more than anything to please the Father. How do we know that Jesus went to the cross not out of obligation, but out of love. Because the Bible says this. For the joy that was set before him, he went to the cross. Treating other people right should not be like pulling teeth for you. 
You should do it not because of that person specifically, but because of the joy that you have first in God. And let the love of God move and motivate everything that we do. Everything that we say, how we act, how we treat each other. That's what it means to have a kingdom mind. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. It is sometimes challenging, but also sometimes freeing to hear sermons like this, God. There are many of us who have other beliefs that we may be wrestling with that are a matter of conscience, and we're holding so tightly onto those things and may not even realize how it's driving a wedge between us and maybe unbelieving friends or family or maybe believing friends and family. God, but let those words be embedded in our minds today. Whatever doesn't proceed from faith, whatever I do, if it is not motivated by my love for you, God, it's sin. God, from the pulpit to the pew, let us not be motivated by obligation, by external realities, God, let us be moved by what pleases you. Even if that is not what tradition says, let us go with you and let us trust the authority of the word of God. God, let us have this kingdom mind in us, that mind that was also in Christ Jesus. It's in Jesus' name.